Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back to Matthew chapter 3 again this evening. Matthew chapter 3. While you're turning, I thought I'd update you on a story we've talked about a number of times before. Uh, It's a frequently used sermon illustration for whatever reason. I thought we were nearing the end of it, uh, but I'm not completely sure at this point. Um, Some of you would know that about 10 years ago, shortly after moving into our house, um, we had a pool filled in, got rid of that problem very quickly and decided, you know, we're more garden people and began to plant our garden in hopes of uh, wonderful crops coming and producing. And um, over the years, that garden has gotten progressively smaller and smaller. Um, But when we did that, uh, we had this great idea, like, we'll buy some apple trees. Uh, We've talked about this again, so many of you are familiar with this, but we looked through a catalog, and evidently you can order apple trees. I didn't know that uh, prior to that time, and rather than just going to like Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever and picking them out, we just ordered them. I mean, the price was great, and they shipped them, and they have a warranty, and I'm like, what could possibly go wrong? And so we ordered our apple trees, and it was, I don't know, a week or two weeks later, a box shows up at our house, and I'm like, wow. That's an interesting box. It's like three feet long and four inches by four inches. And I'm like, we got five apple trees. Like, how did all five apple trees fit in this little box? And we opened it up, and um, what they came to be known as, by way of sermon illustrations, apple sticks. These were not trees, these were apple sticks. There were no branches, there were sticks in a box. And I thought, wow, this is going to take a lot of faith. Um, so anyhow, I'm like, well, we're not going to waste the money. We're going to plant these things. And we just kind of evenly spaced them across the back of where the one time the pool was and kind of the back of the garden. We planted our apple trees and they said, you know, it's going to take a little while. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. These are sticks. Um, but sure enough, like the most shocking thing happened. We stuck the sticks in the ground and eventually they sprouted leaves and branches. And I'm like, this is great. I mean, I can taste the apples already, and yet it didn't take long, and we're looking at our apple trees, and you know they're kind of at an angle across the back, and the one that was all the way to the right, if you were standing at the back door all the way to the right, that one in the corner, that one's not doing so hot. And uh, within the first year, we lost one of our apple sticks. It never made it to the tree stage. It never produced apples. It was gone. I'm like, well, you know, we still got four out of five. That's 80%. I mean, it might be different if it was our kids, but these are apple trees, Okay, um, so I guess it's no big deal. We lost one. Okay, and it was a little while later that in that back corner we had a massive ash tree that got that emerald ash borer in it, and uh, I'm like, no problem. I can take that down. We'll just notch it and drop it. And uh, my neighbors paid attention when that one went down. Uh, it was about 20 inches in diameter. We notched it. We dropped it, and I lost an apple tree. <laughs> no big deal. I mean, it was a whole lot cheaper than the tree guy coming. Um, but we lost one of our apple trees. Now we're down to three of our five apple trees. And, you know, it wasn't long. Okay, so we had one, two, number three was gone. Number four was still there and number five was gone. And it wasn't long and number four wasn't doing so hot. And number four died. I'm like, man, we are really not good at the apple stick thing uh, because we're about five years in at this point and now we only have 40% of those original apple trees. Maybe some of you have tips. You can help me out. Um, but last year, I hate to tell you this, number two died. Like I walked out and I'm like, there's no leaves on number two. Um, and I walk over to see if it's like bendy, flexible. Nope, it's crisp. 
It's done. It didn't survive the winter coming into 2022. And so shortly thereafter, it's like, all right, Micah, number two can go. And now we're down to one. And in my mind, like, I don't know a lot, but I do know, at least allegedly, you're supposed to have more than one apple tree in order to produce apples. And I thought, this is it. Like, the story's done. There's going to be no more apple stick stories at the start of messages. Somehow, number one brought forth apples this year. I cross-pollinated with what? I don't know, but number one did produce apples. And yet, as you know from the story, we're now 10 years into our experience with our apple sticks. How many apples do you think the Brabson family has eaten off of our apple trees? Zero. To this day, the squirrels and the deer make them disappear sometime in early July. Like, they're still really little. You would not want to try. In fact, we had some guys actually come and do tree work so that I didn't do the same thing I did last time. And uh, Melinda evidently saw one of them, like, take one off and eat it. So I guess he got to taste it. He decided it wasn't any good and chucked it off to the side. But at least he got to taste it because we are like zero across 10 years on all of our apple trees. Now, some of you would go, why don't you just quit? And that's probably the right decision at this point. Maybe number one just needs to go. I mean, it's the first in line. It's still there. We have to weed whack him around it and mow around it. It should probably just go. If a tree doesn't bear fruit, if it's not productive for you, it should disappear. It should be gone. That illustration comes up in our text this evening in something far more significant than a plant or a tree in our yard and whether or not it produces fruit. John the Baptist, looking at a group of religious people, indicts them, confronts them, and rebukes their hypocrisy, telling them that true followers of Jesus Christ produce fruit in their lives. True believers in God himself will live with changed lives. The familiar saying has been going through my mind this week, thinking about the text here that our walk talks and our talk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. The religious leaders are going to show up at this baptism as John has preached, as people are baptized, uh, being baptized, as they're repenting from their sins. And yet the heart of the religious leaders really isn't in the action that's taking place. This morning we looked at verses 1 through 6 and saw this call to personal repentance that John issues. We're in a very unique place. He's in the wilderness, verse 1 tells us. Verse 2, he proclaims this message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sin. The king is here. Submit to his authority. Worship him in his glory. The king is here. And yet, we know that That's not the heart of all present. Thankfully, the message does get through in spite of the unique place, verse 1, or the unique individual, verse 4. Verses 5 and 6 tell us there's people coming from Jerusalem, from Judea, from around the entire Jordan, and they are being baptized. They're identifying with John's message about Jesus, and they are confessing their sins. Tonight we move from that call to personal repentance Secondly, to the condemnation of hypocritical worship. The condemnation of hypocritical worship in verses 7 through 12. And again, I don't necessarily want to challenge us to be overly introspective, but I do want us to be on guard and asking God to work in our own lives because these religious leaders are going to come believing we worship God. 
and yet they're misguided in doing so. They're deceived in their self-righteousness. And John seeks by direct condemnation, by very vivid illustration, by warning of future judgment to call them to turn around. As we look at this condemnation of hypocritical worship, John notices a very unique group in the midst of everyone else that's come. Like up to this point in the text, we've been told there's people coming from all these different geographical areas, and yet John hasn't addressed any of them specifically until we get to verse 7. And as he sees them, he confronts them. His confrontation is first raised through a question, then heightened by a command, and finally it's furthered through instruction regarding judgment that will come. As we work our way through verses 7 through 12 at this condemnation of hypocritical worship, notice first it begins with a questionable interest in verse 7. A questionable interest in verse 7. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? we look at this questionable interest, consider first the unexpected affiliation. It might not jump out to us because, you know, as modern Bible readers, we're so used to hearing Pharisees and Sadducees, Pharisees and Sadducees, or Pharisees and scribes. And yet culturally, during that day, these were two very distinct groups. The Pharisees, on the one hand, as you may know, were kind of the separatists of their day. They were the ultra-conservative interpreters of the law. In fact, they even described themselves as setting up a fence around the law in order to protect its integrity. Like, okay, here's what the actual law says, and so in order to make sure we don't violate that law, let's build a fence that just kind of keeps it extra safe, extra secure. Because if you never cross the fence, then you don't have to worry about crossing what the law actually says. By the way, fundamentally, that misunderstands our human heart, okay? The problem is not outside of us that we can somehow restrain. The problem is inside of us. These are the, this is the group that was known even for when it comes to things like making sure that they remember the Sabbath and keep it holy would go around and count their steps. We're told historically to go, we want to make sure we don't go too far. We don't want to make, we want to make sure that we don't do any work. So we're going to count and limit our steps on the Sabbath in order to make sure we fence that law and don't violate what God has said. As a result, they've made these man-made applications. That's the Pharisees. Then we're introduced to the Sadducees. Often the Sadducees were one of the chief priests or the chief priests were involved. They were often marked by wealth. In fact, you can look at different commentators and they're described to be the aristocrats of that day. To go, here's uh, people who are intelligent, who are well off, who have these positions of leadership within the priesthood. But they're not as conservative in their understanding of the Torah. These are the individuals who denied the supernatural, denied the possibility of miracles, saw no hope of the afterlife or the resurrection of the dead. It's like when it's done here, it's done. They denied the possibility of a future kingdom. You know, when you hear that and you go, Pharisees and Sadducees, what ought to jump out to us is not what we typically do. Like, oh yeah, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees, here they come again. It's like, why are these groups together? They don't belong. They're uh, diametrically opposed to each other in what they believe. 
One side is ultra-conservative, seeking to fence the law. The other is looking at parts of it going, no, we don't believe that. Let's redefine that. And they're very liberal in their interpretation. And yet, when it comes to John the Baptist, and as we'll see very, very quickly and more significantly, when it comes to Jesus, they find a very united purpose. Here's something to stand against. Here's someone to stand against. These are the religious leaders who typically were at odds with one another, so we shouldn't expect them to be together. And that's why we call it this unexpected affiliation. Secondly, as we continue looking at this questionable interest, we not only see the unexpected affiliation, secondly, we see this disparaging salutation. Notice how John greets them. Like, I wonder how it would work if we greeted each other this way coming into church tonight, right? Very vividly, using direct address, John says, oh, generation of vipers. Welcome to church. Okay? They've come to hear John's message, and he rebukes them as though they are the offspring of snakes grouped together. Keep in mind, like just so we keep this in context, try to read with a first century kind of mindset or a first century kind of lens. These are the religious leaders of their day. Like, there's many who go, that's incredibly disrespectful. As he looks at them and says, you guys are a bunch of snakes. But he's pointing to the danger that is present the harm that they cause, the poison that they spread, the fact that they cannot be trusted as he begins to condemn their hypocritical worship. We've looked at their questionable interests, first in their unexpected affiliation, secondly in this disparaging salutation, third, it's furthered in the antagonistic question. John asks this question, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? With a sense of sarcastic judgment, the point of John's question, as I briefly alluded to this morning, is why are you here? Snakes, why did you even come? Like, this isn't about your heart with God. This isn't about repentance and confessing sins. This is about something else. And Again, while the motive may not be as starkly different for us, I think we would do well to ask, so why am I here? Am I here because I want to praise God? Am I here because I want to hear from God through His Word? Am I here because I want my life to be changed by His grace for His glory? Am I here because I want God to use me to make a difference in somebody else's life? Or am I here because it's like, well, you know, it's just what I do and it makes me feel good about myself. Am I here because maybe somebody else will reach out to me? Am I here because if I'm not, what will other people think of me and I, I want them to think good of me? You see, John begins to rebuke them knowing that their motive is off and he asks a very antagonistic question, who told you to flee wrath and come to be baptized as though you repented? By the way, that word wrath is very fitting when it comes to God's judgment against sin. We do well to not dismiss that, but to remember that when we sin, when we are God's creation, we are God's creature, He made us for Himself, and we rebel against Him, we live for ourselves and disobey Him, the right response, the righteous response is anger against that sin. It is wrath and judgment 
God's wrath is his just anger responding to sin as it deserves to be dealt with. Why are they here? Their curiosities brought them here. John's popularity has caused them to seek baptism. Repentance, as John makes very clear, repentance from sin and submission to God has nothing to do with it. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, it's very clear that the Pharisees particularly, the Sadducees occasionally, are very concerned with what can we do to make people think highly of us. We'll get there down the road, perhaps long ways down the road, But Jesus says it this way in Matthew 23, verse 5, All their works they do for to be seen of men. Like He didn't just say some of their works. Jesus says all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, enlarge the border of the garments, love the uppermost rooms at feasts, the chief seats in the synagogues, greetings in the market to be called of men. Rabbi, Rabbi. He's like, it doesn't matter what they wear. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how people respond to them. What they want to do is be recognized. What makes them look good, their self-righteousness is about self-promotion. There is a sinful side of our human hearts that often wants people to recognize our goodness instead of going, you know, I have nothing good to offer. I stand in need of mercy and grace. The only goodness that comes in me is a result of God's working. We've been looking at that even in the book of Galatians in Sunday school to realize self-righteousness never, or righteousness actually never comes by our effort. It comes through Jesus Christ alone by faith in his finished work. As they want to appear righteous, they're actually opposed to seeking God. Following this questionable interest, the second aspect of John's condemnation of hypocritical worship is this confrontational imperative. So let's look secondly at this confrontational imperative in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 gives us the command. It says, bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. Recording John's word, Matthew once again points us to a very vivid word picture. It's the one we use as our opening illustration, the idea of bearing fruit. You know, fruit gets, should get produced naturally, organically produced. It isn't just contrived. I was scrolling through the news this morning, and I just saw a headline about um, making meat. Again, that whole idea of somehow we're going to make meat. And I, don't, I don't know how that sits with you. I don't know much about it. I did not click the article because there's a side of me that goes, nope, made in a lab, I'm out. Okay? To go, you know, when I bite into an apple, I'm not expecting some chemist to have figured out how to make that work in the lab. I expect it to be produced organically, naturally. And John here is looking at these religious leaders going, fruit isn't something that's contrived. As you turn from your sin, there ought to be something that just naturally comes out. Again, that illustration is very helpful for us when we think about our own walk with Christ. Because the result of coming to know Christ means, yes, I turn from my sin, but as God works in me, fruit starts to come out. It's what happens. It is to be what is natural, not something that is contrived and worked for and sought by self-energy and self-righteousness, but it is a result of grace. I like the picture, many of you would be familiar with it, that uh, author Paul Tripp uses to talk about when we go about contriving fruit, it's like apple nailing. 
to go, well, you know what? I'm, I'm supposed to be joyful, so I guess I better just nail joy onto myself. And so, well, I don't feel very good today. And I can't believe the, the commute to work was horrible, but I'm going to have joy, so I'm just going to smile. How's your day? Good? Like, let's just nail that on there. You know, that doesn't really work. And again, he paints it much more vividly than I could. But if I went to my apple sticks in my yard, I'm like, hey, Melinda, can you just swing by Giant on the way home, grab a bag of apples, because I'm going to fix this. And I get my stapler out, get the duct tape. You know, it's not going to be long. That fruit could hang out there. It's going to be rotten. It's not really being produced. It's being stuck on there. John's looking at these religious leaders who claim to follow God, and he's like, look, you need to produce the fruit that actually mirrors a change of mind and a change of life. You need to bring forth the fruit that matches with repentance. Don't just go through, in their day, the ceremonials, the ceremonies for cleansing. Don't just attend the feast. Don't just participate in the sacrifices. But actually let God work where your heart is genuinely changed. And it becomes the result. You know, again, for us, the same can be very much true for us. We can go through the motions and go, well, you know what? I'm a church. And I even served. I gave. I read my Bible. And we start to kind of nail. All those things are good things. But we want them to come out of a heart that God is just working to change and devotion to himself. And saying, God, I want to spend time with you. God, I want to hear from you. We could summarize the principle this way. True faith is revealed by a transformed life. It is not a transformed life creates our faith. We don't want to get that mixed up. Rather, true faith is revealed by a transformed life. As we continue looking at the confrontational imperative, we've seen the command. Secondly, look at the confrontation in verse 9. He says, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Like John is relentless here in talking to the Pharisees and scribes. He's called them vipers. He's told them to bring fruits that match repentance. And now, as though he's a step ahead of them, he's like, now you might think we're good because we're children of Abraham. Let me blow that out of the water as well. And he begins to take whatever they might hold on to and go, well, we're Israel. God chose us. Abraham is our father. And he's like, that doesn't matter. You do realize God can start completely over if he wants to. God does not need you. God can bring more children out of the rocks if he wants. Like, Big John's pretty direct here. Okay, Even as we think about God giving children to Abraham and starting the nation of Israel in the first place. Remember how that took place? Good as dead. Like, they're not having kids. And God says, no, you are. And Sarah laughs. God's like, why are you laughing? Because God's that powerful. And now, as John rebukes the religious leader, he's like, don't think to yourselves, we're good because Abraham's our dad. He's like, God can start over. All he needs is some rocks. Okay? That's enough for him to do his work. We might say it this way, position and heritage alone are not enough. We would do well to remember that. Even as we interact with others very graciously, we can be saying, you know what, I grew up in a Christian home. Praise God. I grew up in a Christian home. But my relationship with God is not the result of the fact that I grew up in a Christian home. It's a blessing that God has given, 
But heritage alone is not enough. We need more than just that. We need God's grace working on us, changing us, transforming us, so that we are bringing forth fruit that is fitting with repentance. Someone else can say, well, you know, I've always been a Christian. That's a scary one. Instead of going, you know, there was a time where I repented. I came to realize I was living for myself in sin and selfishness, and I realized that was wrong and that that deserved the judgment of God but came to realize that God in His mercy sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins, to, to rise again, overcoming sin. I believed on Jesus and He saved me. That's repentance. That's confession of our sins. So we continue looking at Jesus' condemnation of hypocritical worship. We've seen first the questionable interest, second the confrontational imperative, and then third in verses 10 through 12, the judgmental indictment. The judgmental indictment. Having exposed the hypocritical motives of the religious leaders and commanded them to change, John now indicts them and instructs them regarding God's judgment of them. As we almost could expect by John, we look at this judgmental indictment. It is first communicated through another vivid illustration. If you like word pictures, I kind of laugh reading John because this is not me to go, let's bounce around from snakes to fruit to axes and trees Uh, But this is what John is doing. It's communicated first through this vivid illustration. He says in verse 10, Now the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. This is a metaphor that also shows up in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah and once in Ezekiel, where God prophesies of uh, future judgment. And now John uses it to indict the religious leaders to say, Even now, like with a sense of immediacy, a sense of imminence, Even now, the axe is right there at the tree, ready to take it down. You know, again, when we think of chopping a tree down, we think of going just a little ways up and notching the tree and beginning to work at it and then going from the other side. And yet what John says here is even more severe than that. Like, let's not just take the tree down, but let's begin to hack at its roots. There is no stump. There is no possibility of this shoot springing forth. Right? There's other points where we can go to the Old Testament and talk about this little shoot that springs up, this branch like Isaiah 11. The picture John paints here is very severe. To go, nothing will be left, no hope of growth, let alone fruit, because you aren't producing. John is making the point, it's time to repent and live in true righteousness. These trees are unprofitable. They're not bringing forth good fruit. In fact, you catch that in the next verse, in verse 10, as the illustration continues. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So what is the evaluation of which trees to keep and which ones to get rid of? Here, John's saying it's fruitfulness. When fruit is present, it serves its purpose. It's symbolic that repentance has taken place. Fruit's the criteria. It's the evidence of faith, of what's flowing through the root, of doing what it should. Keep in mind again, fruitfulness is a result, not a cause. Because we can read this and go like, oh man, well, I better make sure that I'm doing so that God's good with me. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. We're good with God because of Jesus. There is therefore no, not condemnation to them who work really hard at being righteous. It's 
not what the text says, right? There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Nothing separates us from the love of God. So what makes a difference? Why does our faith show up? It shows up in our works. It's James 2. It's the whole book of Titus. To go, when God has transformed and changed my life, he's declared me to be righteous in Christ. Yes, I will not be immediately perfect, but God will be producing fruit in me. It will come out. And so John is challenging these leaders to evaluate themselves. And he does so saying it's like the trees ready to be taken down and cast into the fire, which even there points to God's judgment. We'll see that again as the verses unfold. First, this judgmental indictment is communicated through a vivid illustration. Second, it's heightened by an incomparable comparison. Kind of laughed as I was typing those words this week because that is an oxymoron. Okay? May not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but I get it that that doesn't make sense. But there is this incomparable comparison within the text because John makes a comparison from the lesser to the greater, and the distance is so large that the comparison is hard to make. John begins to go, now, you look at me, here's my ministry, but you've got to understand that the one who's coming next is that much greater. It's like, these two are so much not the same. Look first at John's ministry. He says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. In receiving John's baptism, they were publicly proclaiming their repentance. In fact, in light of the grammar Baptism should be understood as in agreement with repentance. So I'm being baptized in agreement with the repentance that has taken place. To go, because I have changed my mind, because I have changed my life, because I have identified with God through this teaching, I'm now being baptized to say this is what I have believed. Again, we touched this more this morning for those who weren't here this morning, but John's baptism was limited very much in its duration to the point where in Acts 18, Aquila and Priscilla have to straighten Apollos out because all he knows is John's baptism, and that is past more with believers' baptism in Jesus Christ. But he says here, here's my ministry. I baptize you with water that is in agreement with repentance, not causing it, but representing it. But beyond John's ministry, we're focused secondly on Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is greater because of his superiority. Notice the next phrase. He that cometh after me is mightier than I. In fact, I thought we'd get there in verses 13 to 17 this week. It'll be next week now where Jesus does show up, where his baptism does take place, and then the temptation occurs. But John says, the one who's coming after me, the one that I'm preparing the way for that we saw this morning, he is mightier than I. And he goes a step further to go, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals takes and tries to heighten the comparison that much more to go, while John has been called to announce him, to proclaim him, to get people to confess their sins as they prepare the way for him, John's like, I can't even carry this guy's sandals because of who he is. John speaks with an incredible sense of humility as his ministry involves the opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ. Just a small aside by way of application for just a moment, just a small aside. Can I just challenge and remind us that none of us here are ever worthy of opportunities to serve Jesus Christ? To take and say to someone else, let me point you to Jesus. 
Let me remind you of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of the peace that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. To have the opportunity to preach God's Word and to point to Jesus, or to sit in a Sunday school class or in junior church, or to have a one-on-one conversation and to point someone to Jesus Christ. Like, we have an incredible message that we get to share, that we are called to share, but we would be really, do really well to have the mindset of John that goes, I'm not worthy for this. Paul wasn't worthy. We talked about that this morning. You can look at his mindset in 1 Corinthians 1 and realize Paul's like, I'm, I'm not worthy of this message, but I have the privilege of sharing it. Instead of thinking, well, you know what? It's pretty good that I get to help, I get to serve. God, I'm not worthy of this. God, in my weakness, would you use me? Just a small challenge from John's testimony here. The superiority of his person then translates into a ministry that is greater as well. Speaking of Jesus, John the Baptist says, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Like, yes, I've baptized you with water that points to your repentance, but what Jesus is going to do is immerse you in something far greater. And he paints an illustrative picture here to go, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit of God. You're going to have something far greater operating inside of you because the ministry of Jesus will result in the coming and indwelling of the Spirit of God. This passage, by the way, echoes what Jesus himself would say. We read through John chapter 14 to 16. Biblically later, then we'd look and go, and God kept his word. Jesus kept his word. John's word here was fulfilled because in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit comes down. Marked by uh, the tongues that are present, even the little flames of fire that are present. To go, the Spirit of God has come. What's wonderful about that? I can remind us, John is speaking to religious leaders, speaking to Pharisees and Sadducees, and going, the one who's coming, Jesus is greater. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. What they cannot do in trying to bring forth repentance, in trying to bring forth right living, the Spirit of God will. What the law cannot do, the Spirit of God will. You know, I think of those texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 3 particularly, which remind us, that we are not sufficient to change ourselves. Actually, what happens is we condemn ourselves because we work really hard to keep the law, and then we fail, and then we fail, and then we fail, and we realize there's not enough goodness in us. We don't measure up. And so the law condemns us. Our failures condemn us. We need help. And what did God give to help us but his own spirit to go rather than a law outside of you constraining your behavior, I'll put my spirit inside of you changing you. It's that promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 34 or Hebrews chapter 8 to go, I will write my law in your hearts. Because there's going to be something inside of us that changes us and works on us. And he does it through his indwelling spirit. There's also a coming judgment through fire. In fact, look at the next verse. Verse 12 says, Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his weed into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He casts our minds even further forward to a future ministry of Jesus, pointing to a judgment that will take place and matter for eternity. And yet again, John uses a very vivid word picture. This word translated fan is a fork-like shovel. 
You used to toss grain in the air so that as the grain is tossed in the air, that outer husk would begin to blow off with the wind and the heavier grain would fall back down to the ground in order to be able to be harvested and kept productively. And he paints a picture of Jesus going through people who claim to be his followers and using that winnowing fork to toss into the air that it might be separated out so that as the grain follows, falls down, it's go, that is what is kept, that is what is valuable. But the chaff that's been separated out is burned away. In fact, notice the description there in verse 12. Burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. I do believe, as John is speaking here, this is a reference to eternal punishment in hell. How else do we describe unquenchable fire? The other texts in the New Testament that point to this kind of reality are Luke 16 with the rich man being in torment. Or Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 or Revelation 21 verse 8 at the final judgment. To go for those who, maybe even though they've been religious, never really turned from their sin. It was really self-effort, self-righteousness. There's still judgment that awaits. Our need is to turn to Jesus, to repent, to, to do what the multitudes were doing earlier, as we saw this morning, to confess our sins, to say, God, I agree with you. I fall far short of what you want. I'm turning from my sin to believe on you. In fact, we could summarize this evening's text with two very simple thoughts. One, there's a need to believe on Christ, repenting of sin, confessing it, to go, God, I agree with you, so I'm turning from my sin, and I'm believing on Jesus Christ as Savior. But then secondly, not just to believe on Christ, but to bring forth fruit that measures up. To go, God, I just want to yield to you today. I want your Spirit to be at work in me today, so that as I walk in that Spirit, the fruit is produced. That what comes out of me shows that you're working in me. Not that I've worked really hard to produce it because I'm still fallible. I'm still sinful. But God, as I surrender to you and submit to your word and submit to your spirit, you are changing me. Again, as I said earlier, we could summarize the text this way. True faith results in a transformed life. Can you look at life for you? And while it's not perfect, say, you know, God is working to produce fruit. God is working to change. That's why I'm here. I want God to keep working. I mean, need God to challenge me. I need God to confront my sin. I need God to give grace to produce fruit, but I want to please Him. Let's pray. Father, once again, I thank You for this text that gives us insight into the coming of Jesus Christ, Your Deliverer, proclaimed and presented by John the Baptist. Lord, as we consider His message we consider his rebuke of the Pharisees and Sadducees as they came. Lord, I pray that we would truly be repentant, confessing our sins, seeking to bring fruit that matches with that changed thought, that changed life, that repentance. Lord, we ask for your help to that end. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.